Well, hopefully if we are picking the right kinds of songs with the right kind of lyrics that allow uh, the word of Christ to richly dwell within us as we sing them, right, that uh, scripture should come to our minds as we're singing these songs. And hopefully one verse came to your mind when we were singing that last song, and it's Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That song is really a, a song for the Christian life, isn't it? It's kind of a truth for the road. Right? We're all on the road every week um, out there living uh, our Christian lives, seeking to follow Jesus. We're all in the middle of our sanctification, right? And uh, those are just uh, beautiful, powerful truths that we need to be uh, reminded of. So I'm thankful for songs like that and groups like City of Light who write such good uh, lyrics. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to uh, give you a heads up that uh, my family and, and uh, I will be gone for the next few Sundays. Uh, some of you may remember the uh, Booker family. Chris and Amy were longtime members of Lakeside Bible Church, uh, became dear friends of uh, Kelly and me and our kids, all kind of the same age, grew up together, and they moved up to Washington. Um, and uh, they are having multiple weddings this summer. And they've got four kids. Three of them are getting married um, this, uh, this summer. And so um, they tried to plan it all within a reasonable amount of time. But uh, I'm doing the first one. Uh, I get to perform that wedding this coming Friday for Grant and, and his wife, um, uh, Carly. Uh, they actually got married already uh, through COVID. Uh, they went to the... Uh, courthouse because they were already having put it off a year. They didn't want to put it off another year. And so they were going to try to do it through Zoom. In fact, I was going to marry them via Zoom. I thought that would be something to put in my resume that I actually married somebody via Zoom. But we decided that we mutually agreed that probably wasn't the best way to go. Um, so, uh, and then Zach's in that wedding. Uh, and then three weeks later, uh, Garrett gets married and Jacob's in that wedding. He's one of his groomsmen. So uh, we're going to be up there for a few weeks enjoying uh, some fellowship with them and some time as a family. And so uh, Chris and Kyle will be uh, preaching for the next few Sundays. And I know you'll be blessed by uh, their ministry of the Word. And so I had this um, one uh, Sunday that I was like, what do I do? I'm done with Esther. Do I make up something else about Providence? Uh, do I just get up here and read John Piper's book on Providence? That would have been plenty of material for this morning, right? Um, but as I was thinking and praying about what to do this morning, of course, I'm thinking about encounters with Christ. That's kind of on my brain and in my heart right now uh, as we've been uh, going through this summer series on Wednesday nights. And so I thought, well, why not throw in an extra, you know, like a, a baker's dozen, they call, right? You get, you get 12 of something, they throw in an extra. It's like the donut holes, you know, at the donut shop. You know, they, you buy your dozen, they give you the bag of donut holes for free. Well, this one's for free, Okay. An encounter, for Christ, encounter with Christ for free this morning as part of uh, our, our series. And if you haven't been able to be here on Wednesday night, hopefully you, you'll, this will give you a kind of a feel or a flavor for what uh, we've been doing and what we're going to do one more time 
uh, this uh, Wednesday. And so I wanted to look at one of my favorite um, encounters with Christ, uh, and that is of the Gerasene demoniac, probably a story that's familiar to most of you, but let me read it for you as we begin. This is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark records, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes when he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Father, we thank you for this true life story that you preserve for us in the pages of your word so that we could study it and uh, learn from it. And uh, Lord, we confess that here in the U.S., we may not feel uh, spiritual warfare as apparent as maybe in some other uh, cultures around the world um, where they have things like witch doctors and voodoo and and, and other uh, just crazy types of religions, um, animistic type religions, and so in some ways we've been sheltered and shielded from a lot of this kind of stuff, and yet we also have tried to um, maybe be entertained by it in our movies and our TV shows, and so we really need to learn how to think biblically about this matter of demon possession and uh, demonology, and so would you 
guide and direct our thoughts this morning, and uh, that you would be pleased by our uh, response to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't think I need to tell you, but our world has a morbid fascination with demonic activity. And as I prayed, it's a a frequent subject of popular movies and TV series um, going way back to when I was a a kid, The Exorcist and Amityville Horror, uh, Insidious, Annabelle, The Conjuring, uh, It, uh, Supernatural, Evil, The Order. Uh, These are all popular movies that... um, uh, you may have not seen, hopefully you haven't seen, but uh, you are aware of them because you see them advertised and talked about. Um, I remember as a little kid, I don't remember how old I was, but I just remember I was left at home one evening. My parents had gone out to maybe on a date or to some business meal, a business dinner. My dad was a, a salesman, and so they would often go to these business uh, dinners. And so I was home alone, and uh, was watching TV, and this was, I'm going to date myself now, a little TV, probably I would think as big as a, a computer monitor is today, and uh, it was one where you actually had to turn the channels, you know, like click it, you know, like, like this, like you couldn't just sit back and do this, there was no remote controls at the time, and you young people are going, man, he is really old, he didn't have a remote control, and so I remember uh, trying to find something to watch that evening, and here again, I was all alone in this big colonial home back in New England, and so I was turning the channels, and I came across the Amityville horror was being shown on one channel, and, and I knew enough about it that I didn't want anything to do with it, and it freaked me out. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm by myself all alone at night in my house, and here's the Amityville Horror, and so I freaked myself out so badly that if, like, I would not let the channel, I wouldn't cross the channel. In other words, I would just click it all the way around this way and stop, like, before I got to channel three or whatever channel it was on, and I would click it all the way back around and stop again, and I kept going back around trying to find something to watch, but I would not cross that channel because it was the Amityville Horror. And it was just wigging me out. Well, you know as well as I do, there's also uh, this growing intrigue, not just in the world, but in the church, when it comes to demonic involvement in the lives of people and among the nations of the world. There's been some popular books in recent years uh, that uh, presented or promoted this idea of territorial demons and uh, I'm, I'm referring to uh, the, the Frank Peretti series as present darkness and uh, caused some confusion. While is it interesting to think about, perhaps uh, caused a lot of confusion and, and, and I don't know at the end of the day was as helpful as he wanted it to be, but um, there's also deliverance ministries uh, led by self-styled exorcists that are popping up all over the place. Probably the most well-known would be a guy named Bob Larson. Uh, you might have seen him with the kind of the clerical collar and the cross holding it out, and, and he's uh, this evangelical exorcist, and he has these rallies, and people bring their demon-possessed people and friends and neighbors or whoever they think there's demon-possessed, and he, he, he exercises these demons out of them. And there are spiritual warfare seminars, there are schools um, that are becoming more prevalent to train Christians in the art of spiritual warfare. Um, the emphasis is not placed on how to put the armor of God on so that we can stand firm against Satan's attacks, it's, but it's all about attacking Satan head on. 
which you don't see in the scriptures, by the way, at least instructions for uh, believers how to uh, engage Satan um, and rebuke him and bind him. But those are some of the techniques that are being taught, how to cast out demons. And I think all this attention on a demonic influence in the world and in the church tends to push people in one of two directions. Um, either you just don't believe in this kind of stuff, you deny this kind of stuff, or maybe you have an unhealthy preoccupation with it, and, and, and it's, it's greatly exaggerated in your mind. Some people think that the devil and demons are make-believe, just an idea that your parents made up to scare you. Um, or maybe that Hollywood uses to entertain us. Others, on the other hand, have become so obsessed with the devil and demons that they live in fear and confusion. Maybe sort of like I was that night, right? Not willing to cross that channel uh, on, our, on our TV. But uh, th- there are some that, that, that just live with the idea that the devil and demons are behind everything that happens. You may be familiar with the screw tape letters, which was one of C.S. Lewis's famous works. It was a, a, a novel of sorts, um, fiction, obviously, but uh, this, this old seasoned demon was uh, writing letters to his young disciple, this young up-and-coming demon, and so he was able to address some of the things in the spirit realm and and what the scriptures talk about, very fascinating to read. Uh, if you keep it in mind, keep in mind that it's a novel, that it's, that it's, that it's fiction, right? It's not theology necessarily, uh, so be careful as you read those things, but it is very fascinating to read. But he made this comment in the screw tape letters, and I think it's very helpful. He said this, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons, One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and magician with the same delight. So as Christians, we need to be careful to avoid both of these two errors or extremes. And I think the way to do that is to make sure that we draw our understanding of the spirit realm from the pages of Scripture alone. And again, a lot of good books written, um, again, that we forget our novels, that we forget our, our, our fiction. And, and so we can't let them supersede what we know the Scripture teaches. And if they don't, um, even if they're speculating, right? Sometimes that's where we go off base is they, they make these... Uh, you know, educated guesses or they, they make these speculations and then we think, oh, wow, that's a good idea. I wonder if that's true. And next thing you know, it is true. And it begins to reshape our theology. And so I want to just quickly give you a, 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 a quick theology of demons or what's known as demonology, okay? And I'm talking really quick, okay? We could take a whole uh, a month to talk about what the Bible teaches about angels and, and demons and the devil and the spirit world, but just a quick little demonology 101, okay? Demons are fallen angels who followed their leader Satan in his rebellion against God and were banished from heaven along with Satan 
and who presently serve and support Satan as he seeks to thwart the work and will of God here on earth. And you can see this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. It talks about this great dragging, having seven heads, ten hordes, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And it goes on in Verse 7, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is in eternity past. There was a war in heaven. And as you know, Satan raised himself up against God, wanted to be worshipped like God. And God said, I don't share my glory with anyone. And he cast him out of heaven. And the book of Revelation describes it as this war and Satan as this great serpent or this great dragon. And as he was thrown out of heaven, his tail swept away a third of the angels who became the demons what we know today as demons. And these demons will suffer eternal torment in hell along with Satan and unbelievers. We know that from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels or demons. Well, in the meantime... The main activity of demons includes opposing holy angels. We see that uh, in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, We see them also introducing heresies in the church. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul talks about doctrines of demons. Uh, They battle against unbelievers. Of course, Ephesians chapter 6 would be the the main passage in the New Testament about uh, where we can uh, develop a theology of spiritual warfare, but uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's a description there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, of, the, of Satan's minions. That is, he has a very well-organized, well-trained militia or army. And that's why sometimes we get the impression that Satan is omnipresent and Satan is omniscient, which he is neither of those things. He's a fallen angel. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know what you're thinking all the time. He's not everywhere. But because he has this army of demons, a third of the angels, and we don't know how many angels there were to begin with, right? Um, But there's a lot of them to the point where it feels like he's everywhere and he knows everything. Why? Because he's got this, it's kind of like the CIA, right? They know everything. They're everywhere. Big brother, right? They they have this network, this this information uh, uh, connection, Right, where they're sharing information. And so, uh, again, I think that's the spirit of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Don't underestimate Satan and his minions. Because in one sense, they are everywhere. 
They also deceive the minds of unbelievers and keep them from coming to, to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Let me read for you what it says there. It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so they're doing all these things presently and they're also, at times, invading the lives of unbelievers and taking complete control over them and causing them to act in bizarre ways, including things like sinful behavior and multiple personalities and different voices and superhuman strength. This is what we refer to as demon possession. And guess what? It's real. It's not Hollywood. And that's why I've always told our kids, guys, listen, I know that's a popular genre, the kind of the demon horror kind of movie thing and freak yourself out and, you know, guys, don't watch that stuff. That is real. That's not something to to mess with, to play with. To, to laugh about or even to freak yourself out about. Now, obviously, a Christian cannot be possessed by an evil spirit because we are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So you can't be possessed by an evil spirit because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But I think a believer can be the target of demon activity. This would be what you could call demon oppression. Temptation maybe would be another term, right, that we all can relate to. But I think demons can gain a foothold in a person's life primarily through sinful activities and sinful associations. And there's the obvious things that we should avoid and and not get anywhere near, things like fortune tellers and seances and Ouija boards, um, those are obviously things that um, open us up to the, the, the spirit world and, and demonic activity, but it's also drug use, um, pornography, worldly music and movies, ungodly friends. I think these are all ways that demons can get a foothold in our lives. And when Jesus was here on on earth, he delivered many people who were possessed by demons. And this is probably the most well-known exorcism that Jesus ever performed here, the Gerasene demoniac. And this story is included in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic simply means optic, right? If you're understand the eye doctor thing, optics, it's like you, it's all seen from the same perspective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or excuse me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is kind of set apart and different. And so Mark included this story, this account in chapter five, as the second of four miracles that he was stringing together here to demonstrate Christ's authority and power over all things. The, the previous passage is when Jesus calmed the storm. This is Mark chapter four, verses 35 to 41. And so they were in uh, a dangerous situation and uh, he calmed the storm. Then we come to uh, this demonic uh, 
situation where he cast out the demons. And then after that, in verse 21 of chapter 5, he heals uh, the woman with the issue of blood. And then finally, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So Mark's point here is simple, that Jesus was the master of every situation and was able to conquer every enemy, which is proof or evidence that he is God. And so the ultimate proof of Christ's deity was his authority, which I think is the underlying issue in this story. And this story that we're going to look at this morning models three ways to respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we're naturally drawn to to these three responses by a word that's repeated four times in these 20 verses, and it's the word implore. Notice verse 10, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 12, the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 17, and they began to implore him to leave their region. In verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. So this word implore means to beg or to plead. And it really helps us kind of break down the flow of this passage. And so first of all, we're going to see the response of the demons, verses 1 through 13. Secondly, we're going to see the response of the Gerasenes in verses 14 through 17. And then finally, we're going to see the response of the demoniac himself in verses 18 through 20. So let's look first of all at the response of the demons. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea. They, being Jesus and his disciples... We're arriving here in a little town perched on the cliffy eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was called the country of the Gerasenes, and it was six miles directly across from Capernaum. And uh, I, I, was, I still remember, like it was yesterday, driving in the tour bus on our last trip that we took as a church to Israel, and they took us around the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee early one morning. And you could all, all of a sudden, without even them pointing it out, you could kind of see this story come to life because the hills come down on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of these, this cliffy area, and there's all these rocks, and you can see even the caves that are still there to this day. And of course, the tour guide said, hey, by the way, this is where the account of the Gerasene demoniac most likely occurred, right here. And you could totally see pigs flying off the mountain into the water, right? Not literally, but you could imagine, oh yeah, right there, that's where 2,000 pigs could have easily just gone off into the drink. Well, the disciples had just weathered the most horrendous storm that any of them had ever seen. It was so bad that they thought they were going to die. You remember that story. Again, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Um, and, and so they frantically woke Jesus up, who had been sleeping in the back of the boat, and to their amazement, he got up and simply said, hush. And everything stopped. The winds, the waves died down instantly. Everything became perfectly calm. That's not humanly possible. In fact, that doesn't 
even happen naturally after a storm. It takes a little while, right, for the waves to die down, for the winds to stop blowing. It doesn't just stop like that and everything's perfectly glassy. I wish, right, those of us like to water ski or, or wakeboard, that would be wonderful. If you could just walk out on Lake Conroe and go, hush, and have some glassy water. But that's not what the reality is. But in a split second... They went from being terrified by the storm to being terrified by the fact that a man with divine power was in the boat with them. Verse 41, look at, it says there, the last verse of the previous chapter, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, that's Mark's point. Who is this guy? He's got some kind of supernatural power wherever he is. Well, they had barely had any time to recover from this, this first traumatic experience because as soon as they stepped ashore, they were met by another trauma, traumatizing incident. Notice verse 2. When he got out of the boat, Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to find him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one strong enough to subdue him constantly night and day. He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. So here is this man with an unclean spirit. In other words, he was indwelt by demons. Um, and, and as we're about to find out, many demons, a multitude of demons. He was demon-possessed. And again, we don't know how he got this way, but somehow, somewhere, at some time, a group of demons has seized control of this man's life and had driven him literally to insanity. Matthew actually mentioned that there was two guys. Mark chooses to focus in on just the main one, maybe the most violent of the two. But he lived in the caves carved in the hillside, which served as tombs where dead bodies were buried. And obviously, this is also where they considered the evil spirits to reside. And others had tried to restrain this guy, to subdue him, but no manner of restraint worked. He broke out every set of handcuffs, every type of leg shackles they put on him. And, and Mark, notice he takes a lot of time and a lot of words in verse 4 to, to emphasize the demoniac's supernatural strength and uncontrollable power. It's like, okay, Mark, we get it. You, you can't lock this guy up. No, no straitjacket works on this guy. He just tears it apart. This guy's out of control. And so they had abandoned him to a hopeless existence roaming around naked in the mountainous graveyard. Luke tells us that he had no clothes on, that he was naked. He came running up to them naked. And so here he was living in a cemetery a cliffside cemetery. And day and night, he would let out these blood-curdling screeches and, while he cut himself with, with jagged rocks. I mean, this guy had, had given himself over to sadomasochism, just, just hurting himself. 
And I imagine he must have been repulsive to, to look at and to, to be around. He was filthy and smelly and had open wounds, open gashes all over his body. And, and on top of that, he was extremely dangerous. His savage acts weren't reserved for himself. Matthew, if you look at his account, says that he was so violent that no one dared to pass by where he lived because he would just viciously attack everyone who came near to him. I mean, I'm thinking it's kind of scary when I'm walking our dog and, you know, some other dog comes running down the road after our dog and I'm thinking, is this going to go down right now? Am I going to have to punch this dog in the head? You know, is he's, right? But I can't imagine some crazy demon says naked dude chasing us down the road. That's a totally different, you know, that's next level, right? But that's what this guy was all about. I mean, you did not go by this guy's dwelling because he would come out and attack you. The picture that comes into my mind is, is, is Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, that pathetic, tortured soul with that double personality, Schmeagol and Gollum, and right, he, he had gone mad over his obsession with the ring, and he, just, he, he was just a hideous-looking creature, wasn't he? So again, try to put yourself in the disciples' sandals here for a second. They've just hauled their boat ashore, and, 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 and they're just kind of, kind of securing everything there, and they turn around just in time to see this crazy naked guy charging at them. But to their shock, he suddenly, this, this wild savage, stopped and bowed down at the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. This guy didn't bow before anybody. He typically attacked people, like full-on aggressive. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So the demons inside this guy immediately recognized who this leader of, of this band of men who was coming ashore, and they immediately acknowledged his authority over them. He was the most high God. Wow. They acknowledged his superiority, his authority over all things, including them. In fact, this was a typical response, by the way, whenever Jesus um, came into contact or had an encounter with someone who was demon-possessed. This is uh, Mark chapter 1. You can just flip back there if you want. It's in the neighborhood there. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You say, well, how did demons recognize him? How, how did they know who he was? Well, what did we say at the beginning? Who are demons? They're fallen angels. These very same demons that were in this guy used to worship God in heaven in eternity past. 
And so they knew that Jesus was the second member of the Trinity. They knew exactly why he had come to earth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so they, they knew that he had come to destroy them, to defeat Satan and, and, and them, destroy the power of sin and, and death. And notice it says, they, they said, do, do not torment me. Matthew says that they said, um, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? In other words, they knew that they were going to be eternally judged. They, they knew their days were numbered. That, that someday they would be cast into the lake of fire where they would suffer torment forever and ever. And they, they, they knew their eternal destiny. They knew that hell had been created for the specific purpose of punishing Satan and them. Matthew 25, 41, I already read it. I hope you're seeing that this is one of the greatest evidences or proofs of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because you hear you have demons who despise Jesus They hate everything about him. They oppose everything he did and everything he still does. But in his presence, these demons had no choice but to worship him and to plead with him not to give them what they knew they rightfully deserved. I mean, these are Jesus' arch enemies. And if anyone in the universe wanted to deny his deity and his authority and their ultimate destiny, it would be demons, but they couldn't. And that's why they didn't. I find it interesting that at this very same time, the religious leaders were debating about who Jesus was. The crowds were divided about who Jesus was. Even the disciples were still trying to figure out who Jesus was. But in the spirit world, there was no confusion about who Jesus was. They knew exactly who he was. Demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they recognize his authority over them. And they understand that the consequence for rebelling against his authority is eternal damnation in hell. However, they refuse to submit to Christ's authority or take refuge in his sacrifice for sin. That's what Jesus described, or excuse me, that's what James, Jesus' half-brother, described as demonic faith. If you're familiar with the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, their faith was one of fearful recognition, not joyful submission. And sadly, there's a lot of people, I think, who say they believe in Jesus, but they are unwilling to submit their lives to him as their Lord and Master. I think the point James was making was they have the same kind of faith as demons. And that ain't going to get you anywhere but to hell. 
Listen, the demons are more orthodox in their theology than we are. They, they know way more than we'll ever know. So it's not about believing all the right stuff. Because they believe all the right stuff. They know it's true. And yet they fail to submit to Christ and abandon their wicked ways and follow him. Notice verse 8, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion, by the way, was the largest unit of troops in the Roman army, typically 6,000 soldiers. So this guy was tormented by thousands of demons, apparently. Verse 10, notice, and he began to implore him earnestly. He began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. So it seems that, that these demons had a, a stronghold not only over this man, but over that entire region. Which based on the next response we're going to see is perhaps why they told Jesus to take a hike. Luke mentions that they said not to command us to depart into the abyss. So this is even more. It's not just, hey, don't, make us, don't, don't tell us to leave this area. Don't send us to the abyss. You say, what is that? Well, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. They didn't want to get thrown prematurely into the abyss where they were going to ultimately end up. They were trying to buy more time is what they were trying to do. They knew what their destiny was. They just didn't want to go there. They wanted to remain free to continue to, to work evil in the world, to do their wicked business. So out of desperation, they were looking for a way of escape. And notice verse 11, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain and the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. So they kind of were, kind of, if you will, kind of getting backed up into a corner here, and they were just looking for anything, anywhere, anything. They were grasping for straws, and they're like, hey, how about the pigs? Send us into the pigs. And frankly, I don't think that they were aware of what was going to happen next. They were thinking that was a, probably a safe. They wouldn't have been asking to go into the pigs if... If, if they knew they were going to go off the cliff and just be destroyed, right? I think they were thinking that's a safe place for us to chill for a little while. Uh, or they wouldn't have asked, right, to go there. So Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Imagine the herdsmen, right? 
The guys that were watching these 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. And, and here they went. Their entire herd just went stampeding down the hill and plummeting to their death into the sea. Now again, there's a lot going on here that I will confess anything I say beyond this is speculation. But the mass swine suicide may have served as a confirmation that the demons actually left the man and went into the pigs. I mean, there had to be something visual. I I want you to all see. I don't want to just say, yeah, they're gone. No, I want you to see that they're gone. And these demons, apparently, they had been so bent on destroying this man, perhaps they just decided to destroy the pigs instead. But I think the point is, this was visible proof that this man had been delivered from demon possession. He was finally free. I'll give you a homework assignment. Go home and hop on YouTube and look for the Casting Crown song, Set Me Free. It's a great song based on this story of the Gerasene demoniac. So this is the response of the demons. Well, let's look at the response of the Gerasenes. The response of the Gerasenes. Look at verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been deep demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, no longer naked, right? And in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. So the townspeople, they were totally unprepared for what they saw. The last time they saw this guy, he he was totally out of control, running around buck naked and acting like a crazy guy. He was a madman. Now he's sitting down, he's clothed, and his sanity had been restored. He was no longer violent, vicious, savage. A a truly miraculous transformation had taken place in this man's life. In fact, Luke says that he had been made well, quote, made well, which is the word that Luke uses uh, in his gospel to describe salvation, that this guy had gotten saved. He'd been born again. He'd become a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So they couldn't believe their eyes. I mean, this was radical. And you would think they would have been excited. They would have been in awe. And wow, who is this guy? We want to know you. This, this man that came in and, and delivered us didn't just deliver this guy, delivered us from this guy. Because we were all scared of him. But rather than getting excited, they, they took their fear of this guy and they put it on Jesus now. They got scared of Jesus. And I think their response is one of the most tragic responses ever recorded in the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. 
And they began to implore him to leave their region. So even though they had a clear explanation of what had happened, this undeniable demonstration of God's power, the people begged Jesus to leave. Now who's acting insane? They were more concerned about about pigs than this guy's soul. Apparently, they were the original animal activists, right? Save the pigs. Listen, in God's eyes, people, human beings, are more important than pigs and whales and spotted owls and you fill in the blank. So what motivated them to do the unthinkable here, to send the Son of God away? To tell Jesus to get lost. Well, I think it's because he disrupted their lives and destroyed their livelihood. He had just caused them a major economic loss here. I mean, they lost a lot of bacon that day. And so they may have figured that if he were to stay around, he might cause other changes that would cost them dearly. They didn't want to change. They liked their lives the way they were. Jesus was an intrusion. They would be more comfortable not having him around, so they they made it very clear to him that he was not welcome. Sadly, this is a common occurrence in churches where a preacher comes to town and begins to faithfully and powerfully preach the truth of the scriptures and it disturbs those who had gotten comfortable. It intrudes on their comfort zone and so they begin to conspire and figure out a way to get rid of them to maintain the status quo rather than to change. How tragic that these guys preferred swine over the Savior. They preferred pigs over the Prince of Peace. They turned away the Son of God who had the power not only to transform the demoniac, but their entire region. They missed the opportunity of a lifetime here. And I think their response would be unbelievable if it weren't for the fact that this is how most people still respond to Christ today. Instead of welcoming Jesus into their lives, they tell him to leave, to get lost. Why? Because they want to keep their lives the way they are. In fact, flip over a couple pages to the right to Mark chapter 8. And listen to what Jesus said to the crowd that was there with his disciples. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, what, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what's been referred to as the gospel according to Jesus. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. In other words, Jesus was providing them some incentive. He's, he's, he's asking them to give up everything. To come after him, they've got to deny themselves, take up a cross. In other words, be willing to die and follow him. And they're like, yeah, right. Why should I do that? Well, the reason is for if you want to save your life, like and say, oh, no, I'm not interested in that deal, you're going to what? Lose it. But if you lose your life, in other words, you give it up to me, the way I'm asking you to, for the gospel, you get to keep it. You'll be saved. And then he said this, verse 36, which is one of the strongest statements in all the word of God. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, really? I mean, what, what do you gain by keeping your life to yourself to do with it what you want and to achieve all that you want to achieve and to go do whatever you want to do and have whatever you want to have, but then at the end of the day, you'll lose your soul in hell? Was it really worth it all when it's all said and done? One commentator said this, Quote, countless multitudes still wish Christ far from them for fear his fellowship may occasion some social or financial or personal loss. Seeking to save their possessions, they lose their souls. Wow. So back in Mark 5, this is a sad response, but it's also a scary response. Why? Because Jesus did what they asked him to do. He left. Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. He got in the boat and left. And as far as we know, he never returned to that specific town ever again. And it's scary to think that today, right now, may be the only opportunity some of you ever have to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your opportunity. Today is your day. You're hearing the truth of his word. And if you reject him and send him away, he may go away and never come back. Christ is not someone to be trifled with or toyed with. And then lastly, we have the response of the demoniac. And, and I love this. This is really kind of the, I think, the high point of this story. It, it ends on a, on a high note, uh, ends with great joy. Notice verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, right? Because they said, hey, leave. He said, okay, fine. He was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. This is so beautiful. This 
delivered demoniac begs Jesus to let him come. I want to come with you. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. So he already had fallen in love with his newfound Savior, and he wanted to, to serve him wherever he went. And you would have thought the next verse would say, absolutely, come on. We got room in this boat for you. Let me disciple you, right? Let me hang out with you for the next few months or a few years and teach you all that you need to know and you can become one of my disciples. But what did he say? Verse 19, he did not let him. He wouldn't let him come with him. And he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Go home and tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors about the undeserved deliverance that I provided you and how I transformed your life. I mean, talk about a testimony, a salvation story, as we've been talking about on Wednesday nights and having some of you share your testimony, how you came to know Christ. I mean, this guy, I guarantee, was notorious. Everybody knew about that, that, oh, that crazy guy who lives out that, on that cliffside cemetery. Don't go out there. He'll attack you. He's, he's crazy. And here comes this guy in his right mind, and he begins to tell people, hey, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm a changed man. We're like, how'd that happen? Well, this guy named Jesus, he got off the boat one day, and we had an encounter. And I'm, I got radically saved. I'm a different man. I mean, you think he'd get some attention, right? He'd get people's attention with that story. Why didn't Jesus let him come with him? Well, because the rest of the people told Jesus to get out of there. And so it was critical for this man to stay there and obey Christ's command in light of the fact that he was leaving. Hey, I can't stay, but you can you can be my witness. You can share your testimony with everyone. And isn't this just a beautiful picture of Christ's mercy and compassion on these people? I mean, he could have done what the, he had told the disciples to do at some point. If people aren't listening to the message, they don't want to hear it. You take your sandals off, and what do you do? Shake the dust off your sandals and say, see ya. We're out of here. But he didn't do that. Even though they had rejected him, he didn't leave them without a witness. And so he graciously sent this maniac to be a missionary to that town and to that whole region. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed, I should say. Decapolis was a, a league of 10 Greek cities located in the region east of the Jordan River. So this was primarily a Gentile territory. The fact that these, there's pigs in the story, most likely it was Gentile area, right? Jews wouldn't be most likely tending pigs. They were unclean animals, right? Not kosher. So this is perhaps a Gentile uh, context here. But this is the story, right? This, 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 this maniac-turned-missionary 
And I think he's a great example for all of us who've experienced Christ's merciful, transforming work in our lives. That our salvation should result in proclamation. That we have the opportunity and the responsibility to tell others about the great things that God has done for us. Many passages in the New Testament exhort us to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 where we implore and beg and plead with people to be reconciled to God through Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wasn't that true, that guy? I mean, he went from darkness to to light and guess what? So have we. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So I think what God is saying to us today through this story is go home. You're like, yeah, it's 12, let's go home. It's time to go home. Go home. Go home to your family. Go home to your neighborhood, your subdivision. Go to work tomorrow. Go to school tomorrow. Go to the gym tomorrow. Go to the grocery store tomorrow. Wherever you go tomorrow, go and what? Report to people the great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you, how he saved you. And if you're not sure where to start by sharing the gospel, the good news of salvation, God's merciful plan of salvation in Christ, this would be a great story to start because I think it's a great analogy of every unbeliever While not everyone is possessed by demons, they're controlled by Satan, according to 1 John 5, 19, Ephesians 2, verse 1, that he is the God of this world, and people are walking as uh, zombies, if you will, living among the walking dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have insanity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 9.3 talks about. Our sinful habits are, are, are suicidal, they're, they're masochistic, and they're, we're ultimately destroying ourselves with our sin, and sin has gained a stronghold in people's lives. They may have lost hope of ever being delivered from it, but the point is if Christ can set free this, this demoniac, He can set them free too. And he can set you free if you are in bondage to your sin. And the only thing that will stop Jesus from setting you free and transforming your life is if you send him away. The question is, will you welcome Jesus into your life today? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this powerful story of your merciful, transforming, transformative work in this man's life. Lord, what an what a 
awesome privilege that you've given all of us to have experienced maybe not this same dramatic conversion, but Lord, you've rescued us from Satan and death and hell and sin, and, and we can tell others of the great things that you've done for us based on your mercy. You haven't given us what we deserve. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to go now, to put into practice this message and really to do what this whole thing is all about, that, that us being here today at church is simply a means to an end, and that's to go out of here and to share Christ with the lost and dying world. So help us to, to be faithful to do that. Give us wonderful opportunities this week to talk to folks and uh, help us to take advantage of the culture in which we live that is so desperately in need of Jesus, that you'd give us boldness, you give us winsomeness as we do it. And Lord, I would pray for anyone here this morning who has heard this message that they would not send you away, but that they would receive Christ, they would invite him into their lives to be their Savior and their Lord. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.